For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon, His Kingdom Come, Revelation 12, uh, verses 10 through 12. So in our study to this point in Revelation 12, Revelation 12, again, a very important chapter, very important chapter in Revelation, a very important text in the Bible. Uh, We've been introduced through Revelation chapter 12, we've been introduced to the grand narrative of redemptive history, the grand story of redemptive history, God's redemptive plans and purposes throughout the age. And that narrative has been conveyed to us in summary form, if you will, in Revelation chapter 12. And it's been conveyed to or communicated to us through the use of two great signs that appear to the Apostle John uh, from heaven. And the narrative centers, the narrative centers upon the birth of this male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so these two signs appear to John from heaven. The protagonist in our narrative, in this redemptive story, is this regal woman that is introduced to us in verses 1 and 2, who is crying out in labor, waiting to give birth to a male child. The antagonist in our narrative is an evil, violent, fiery red dragon introduced to us in verses 3 through 4, waiting to devour the child as soon as he is born. Now, again, when we come to Revelation, we've got to understand, I think it's clear, that we're dealing with uh, signs and symbols, visions and pictures, just like we, uh, in our own day, might use signs and symbols to depict truths or signs and symbols to point us to realities or point us to truth. Revelation does the same thing, using signs and symbols to communicate spiritual realities to us that we can't experience or can't take in through our five senses. These things are realities that exist behind what we experience with our senses. These things are true, though we can't see them, and so they're depicted for us in these pictures. Now, this redemptive narrative is depicted for us through these two signs given to the Apostle John, and that's what Revelation 12 really does. It it paints this picture of redemptive history and summarizes what's going on in redemptive history behind what we experience on the earth as the people of God, right? These spiritual realities that, that exist behind the realm that we can see, taste, touch, smell, and hear, okay? So it's um, giving to us through these pictures, it's uh, summarizing for us spiritual realities that exist behind our senses. Now, that being said, if we look at Revelation chapter 12, we began the chapter, and again, this is a summary of redemptive history, we began the chapter with these two signs that appeared in heaven, The first is this woman, this regal woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, her head a garland of 12 stars. I'm not going to repeat the sermon where we explain all those things uh, when we walk through all that, but suffice it to say that we identified the woman with the people of God, right? Not just the people of God, the woman again is a symbol pointing to a spiritual reality. What does the woman represent? Well, you could say the woman represents Eve. The woman represents Israel giving birth to the male child. The woman represents Mary. But the woman, as we'll see working through Revelation 12, also depicts the people of God. 
the serpent, the devil, the dragon of old, that slanderer who is cast down, goes off to make war with the woman in the wilderness. That's the people of God who's been, who've been dispersed. And with the rest of her offspring, those who've believed the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ through her word. So the woman represents the people of God. That's the first picture that's given. She is waiting to give birth to this male child. She cries out in labor and in pain to give birth. And in that, as we've said, there's this pattern that's established of suffering, suffering that is bringing forth the kingdom of God on this earth that frankly despises him. So there's suffering involved with that. And that's depicted in the labor that this woman um, has in giving birth to the male child. Now then in verse three, another sign appears in heaven, this great fiery red dragon uh, having seven heads, 10 horns, indicative of his authority on the planet, his global authority. He has seven crowns or diadems on his heads, another indication of his authority. And verse four, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And again, this could indicative of Satan's fall in the beginning when Satan fell somewhere between the creation of the earth, uh, so to speak, and the creation of man. Uh, we have the fall of Satan, Isaiah chapter 28, is, or Ezekiel, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, depicting the fall of Lucifer and Satan dragging a third of the angels, a third of the angels falling with him. That's alluded to there in verse four. Uh, and then this dragon, knowing that that male child was promised by God to one day crush his head, that dragon then hovers, again, as a perverted sort of midwife over the woman. He hovers over her, awaiting the birth of, his, of her child so that he might devour the child as soon as he's born. Again, it's a picture of the conflict that began in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, with enmity between the woman and her seed and the serpent and his seed began in Genesis chapter three, and that conflict has been waged ever since. That is the the, the foundation, if you will, or that is the explanation, if you will, of the conflict that's existed in even to our day between this world and the kingdom of God and his Christ. So she bears the male child in verse five, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And before the devil could devour her child, he was caught up to God into his throne. A synopsis of the life the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ all in one verse there before the devil could take his victory. Um, in verse six, upon his ascension to the throne, upon his enthronement, verse six, the woman fled into the wilderness. Again, this woman representing the people of God. What happens after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ? A great persecution and the church was scattered. They went everywhere Acts 13 says, everywhere preaching the gospel. They were scattered into the wilderness, so to speak, and the devil hot on their heels. She fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. 1,260 days is a reference to the prophecy of Daniel where Daniel is explaining the last week, seven days, the last Sabbath period, you might say, the last sabbatical, the last seven days of redemptive history represented in Daniel as 1260 days times time and half a time, 42 months, um, three and a half years, all of those references to the same period of time. And that reference signifying the age in which we now live. Notice with me the chronology of that 
summary given in Revelation chapter 12. He is caught up to heaven and to his throne and the 1260 days begins. You see, she flees into the wilderness where in the wilderness, the people of God represented by the woman are nourished by God, has a place prepared for her there by God in the wilderness, 1260 days. So what does this vision given to the apostle John in Revelation chapter 12 mean to indicate by the use of that symbolic period of time, 1260 days. What that is meant to say to us is we're to look in the scriptures for where the reference is to that period of time. And essentially the Lord through this vision given to the apostle John says, this pertains to that, right? This period pertains to that which was prophesied to Daniel, right? Let the reader understand, as the Lord might say in Matthew 24, let the reader understand this period pertains to that prophecy. John, again, is writing with his New Testament pen, but he's dipping that New Testament pen in an Old Testament inkwell, right? So he's referring back to the Old Testament continuously for our understanding of end times, of last things. Immediately upon the woman fleeing into the wilderness to be persecuted by the dragon and by the seed of the serpent, a great war upon the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ, upon his ascension to heaven, caught up to God and into his throne, a great war breaks out in heaven in verse seven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. The Lord Jesus Christ had secured a great victory on the cross. Michael, you could say, is carrying out that victory as it were, um, uh, executing the implications of that victory in heaven. And Satan, that dragon of old, that diabolos, that slanderer, that adversary is cast out. He did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So he was cast to the earth to deceive that dragon who deceives the whole world. As we've seen, that historical narrative summarized by Revelation 12, really summarizing redemptive history from Genesis until the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. That's Revelation chapter 12, right? That historical narrative began with the woman and the dragon in the garden. That garden scene, there's great significance to what takes place in the garden. Great significance. That garden scene, that garden interaction between the deceiver and the woman set the terms of their relationship until the birth of that male child. It explains the relationship between the two until the birth of that male child. And Revelation 12 goes on to explain the relationship between the two after the birth of that male child. But all of that redemptive history, all of that redemptive narrative focuses on, emphasizes the birth of that child. And ultimately, that child's victory over the dragon. He will crush the head of the dragon with fang-pierced heel, right? Now, in this promised son, in this promised child, the promises of God are yes and amen. All of the promises of God are secured in him. All of the redemptive plans and purposes of God are secured in him. Redemptive history pivots. All of history pivots upon that crucial moment in history, the birth, the incarnation, the life, the perfect life, the sacrificial death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement of the promised king. It all hinges on that male child. It is, if you will, the, the quintessential story of the prince who kills the dragon and gets the girl, right? That's the summary, if you will, from Revelation 12 of all of redemptive history. Now, 
As we've seen thus far in our consideration of this chapter, that conflict between the woman, between the serpent and his seed and the seed of the woman comes to its apex, its climax in the incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the gospels then, when you're reading the gospels, in the gospels, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, when he's born into this world, having taken upon himself our flesh, we see the Lord Jesus Christ step onto the field of battle. We think about Revelation chapter 12 and the narrative that's being depicted for us there. Jesus Christ, when he comes to the earth, steps onto the field of battle. It's a battlefield between the woman, if you will, the seed of the woman, and Satan. And his full scale, when Jesus Christ comes, he comes, steps onto the field of battle, his full scale assault against Satan and against the kingdom's his kingdoms of this world, Satan holding the world under his sway. He is the God of this age, so to speak, the prince of the power of the air. The Lord Jesus Christ, his full assault upon Satan's kingdom begins. His full-scale assault against the kingdom of darkness begins. While the Lord Jesus Christ walks this earth during the time of his ministry, demons are exposed. You see this intense period of demonic activity um, where uh, demons are exposed. The Lord demonstrates his ultimate authority over demonic forces. He wields the sword of the spirit. He does all of that by the word of the God, by the word of God, trusting in the Lord, in the Lord, his, in the father through faith. He does all of that in the power of the spirit, in faith and obedience to the, the father. And in all of that, Jesus Christ begins to take his victory over Satan and his demonic forces. In that, in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself from Matthew 12, a text we'll look at in a moment, Jesus Christ binds the strong man. He binds, who is the strong man of this planet before the Lord Jesus Christ shows up on the scene on the field of battle? Who has this planet, this world in his sway? Satan, right? And Jesus Christ says, in order to plunder the strong man's house, you've got to bind, bind the strong man. When you see Jesus Christ casting out demons, he is binding the strong man. He is plundering his house casting out demons. And what is he doing? He is gathering his elect out of the world through preaching of the gospel. He is taking for his own name anyone he so chooses, right? He's plundering the house of, the, of Pharaoh. At that moment, when Satan pierced his heel at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ presses his heel against the head of the serpent and secures his crown, secures and inaugurates the kingdom, so to speak. Jesus Christ is then enthroned and Satan is cast down. Jesus Christ is enthroned and Satan is cast down. Now that work, think with me now, that work, all that Jesus, in the words of Luke from the book of Acts chapter one, all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, that work now continues. The work that Jesus Christ began in his own earthly ministry now continues not through the bridegroom directly as it had before, but through his bride. That work now continues. Our head enthroned in heaven. He's not left us orphans. He's come to us by his spirit. And the body now, his body continues to plunder the house of the strong man continues to plunder Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The Lord continues to call out a people for his name. That plundering 
that victory being carried out through the ministry of the Lord's people as the gospel is preached and Jesus Christ calls out a people from the world for his own name, calls out his people. He is in that freeing them from the dominion of Satan. He is freeing them from the kingdom of darkness and he is conveying them into his own kingdom, the kingdom of the son of God's love. Satan, during this period of time, can do nothing about it. He can do nothing about it. The strong man has been, in that sense, think with me now, the strong man has been bound. We're gonna make a point as we move forward. I'm heading somewhere with this, right? Um, The strong man has been bound. Satan can do nothing about it. God's elect will be saved. They will come to him. All those who have been elect of God were predestined to be conformed into the image of his, of his son. And those whom God has called, elected and predestined, he calls. Those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies, right? Now, that is an unbreakable chain of redemption that began with election in eternity past and is carried out inexorably, inviolably, until they are glorified and in heaven forever. He is taking a people out for his name and Satan can do nothing about it. His activities severely restrained, constricted. The Lord continues to call out a people for his name and the gates of Hades will not prevail against the spread of the gospel. If you think about Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter two, when Daniel is interpreting the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of a great statue, that great statue representing four great kingdoms. And a small stone, a small stone that is cut without hands, meaning that it was cut by God, that small stone strikes Nebuchadnezzar's statue, destroys those four kingdoms, takes them out of the picture, if you will, and that small stone establishes a kingdom that will never go away, an everlasting kingdom, a dominion that will last forever under God's king under the king that he's placed on his holy hill. And that small stone grows into a great mountain that consumes the whole earth. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Thinking of the kingdom parables in the gospels, what began as a small seed has now grown into a great tree and the birds of all the earth find their home in its branches. We are, brothers and sisters, we are building the kingdom that has been established, that is growing into a great mountain that will be consummated at the return of Jesus Christ. That's what Revelation 12 summarizes. So the work of Jesus Christ now continues and it continues through his bride. So as we come to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 then this afternoon, the Lord's enthronement becomes the subject then of a great celebration in heaven. Look at verse 10, great celebration This proclamation is is made and there's a celebration in heaven. Verse 10, then upon that war in heaven, upon Satan being cast down, this proclamation then interprets those events and says in verse 10, then I heard this loud voice, a mega voice in heaven saying, now, now upon the casting down of Satan, now salvation and strength And the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come because or for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. 
And they, our brethren, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even to the death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. I want us to consider this text from three basic headings in verses 10 through 12. One, we see the victory of our Lord in verse 10. Two, we see the victory of his saints in verse 11. And three, we see a contrast of kingdoms in verse 12. Victory of our Lord in verse 10, the victory of his saints in verse 11, and a contrast of kingdoms in verse 12. We're going to look primarily at the victory of our Lord in verse 10. We'll consider the other two points in the weeks to come. So first, consider this victory, the victory of our Lord in verse 10. Now, as we've seen, upon the ascension and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ, when that male child was caught up to God into his throne, a great war then breaks out in heaven. It's verse seven, right? The dragon and his angels are powerless to prevail and they were cast out. They were thrown to the earth. Upon the defeat of Satan at the cross and upon the defeat of Satan at that war, being cast to the earth at the time of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, A proclamation in heaven interprets those events. And this is what it means. This is what it means that Christ has ascended. This is what it means that Christ is now seated upon his throne at the right hand of the majesty. This is what it means. Salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power or the authority of his Christ have come. That's what it means, okay? Satan being cast out, this victory takes place. What does that mean? The kingdom of our God and the power or the authority of his anointed one, his Christ, his Mashiach, his Messiah, that power, that kingdom has come, okay? Now, the point of our study of Revelation, uh, as you've considered this, have you, as we work through Revelation, this language should sound, begin to sound familiar to you, right? We have heard this language before. And if you remember, we heard this language last time, This came at the end of the cycle of trumpets in Revelation chapter 11. Flip the page back, look at Revelation 11, and look there at verse 15. We've heard this language before, right? Salvation, strength, the kingdom of our God, power of his Christ have come. Look at chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded. Remember in this cycle of trumpets, we're being pressed against the very end of the age, pressed against that time period where Jesus Christ is going to come back, judge the wicked, right? We're being pressed against the very end of the age when this seventh angel sounds the blast of the seventh trumpet. When the seventh angel sounded, verse 15, there were loud voices in heaven saying, here it is, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, who it is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. Now again, think with me, this is the promised kingdom. This is the promised kingdom. When you read of a kingdom promised in your Old Testament, you're reading through the Old Testament prophets, for example, and you read of a promised kingdom, this is it. This is it. This is, what we were, this is what we're waiting for. This is what the Jews were waiting for when the, the Lord Jesus Christ came the first time and they didn't understand the nature of that kingdom. This is the promised kingdom, this kingdom that we see, Revelation 11, Revelation 12. If you think with me carefully about Revelation chapter 11, when we read this language in Revelation chapter 11, that 
that sounding of the seventh trumpet has pressed us against the very end of the age when Jesus Christ comes back. And when Jesus Christ comes back, we see this language. The kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ have, or the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a consummation of this promised kingdom. This kingdom that will never go away, the dominion of that kingdom will last forever. Make sense? Very end of the age when Jesus Christ returns, there's a consummation of that kingdom. Now, if you look at Revelation chapter 12, flip the page back. And in Revelation chapter 12, this language takes place at the casting down of Satan when the Lord Jesus Christ rises, ascends to take his throne. Now think with me why that is. When the Lord Jesus Christ, when that male child is caught up to God and to his throne, he is enthroned in majesty. He takes the seat of authority in heaven. He is enthroned. He is reigning even now. The Lord Jesus Christ does that upon his ascension after he was raised from the dead. So there is, in Revelation 12, in that language, there is an inauguration of that promised kingdom. Is Jesus Christ a king right now? Absolutely he is. And what is he ruling over? He's ruling over the established kingdom, the kingdom that has been promised in scripture, the kingdom promised by the prophets. He's ruling over that kingdom right now. So he ascends to heaven. And when he ascends to heaven and he is seated upon his throne, behold, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, right? So there is, there is an already and a not yet to the reality of this kingdom. There is an inauguration of the kingdom and there is a consummation of the kingdom. There is an inauguration of the kingdom and then that small stone grows into a great mountain that consumes the whole earth. And how does that take place? That takes place through the preaching of the gospel as God builds his heavenly spiritual temple, if you will, one living stone upon another. All of his people being gathered together from the four corners of the earth. That's your eschatology, amen? That's what Revelation is teaching us. That's what Revelation 12 is depicting for us. So is it right to say that this kingdom has come? Absolutely it is. The Lord says as much himself in Matthew chapter 12, a text we'll look at in a moment. If I cast out demons by the power of God, then you must say the kingdom of God has come upon you. And it has come upon us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is enthroned even now. Here's the point. Here's the, and this is what I want you to think about. Brothers and sisters, that kingdom is now. That kingdom is now. What are you and I doing during this age as we await the return of Jesus Christ? We are preserving his worship and we are preserving his witness while the Lord Jesus Christ calls out a people for himself, a people to his own name, and builds his kingdom. We are doing kingdom work. Is that, is there, is that question, is that, is that kingdom in question? Is there any doubt that that is going to come to pass? Absolutely not. The victory has been won. How do we know that? Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and Satan has been cast out. Do you see? Satan is cast out. He's a defeated foe. We are doing kingdom work that is invincible. Nothing will oppose it. Although in our experience, it appears as though many oppose it. It's, it's winning. <laughs> there, there's no way that it can be defeated. 
So it's just, um, that should be a tremendous encouragement to you and I during this age. That should be a tremendous encouragement. We are doing the work that God has called us to do. That work will happen. (laughs) And it's going to happen until Jesus Christ comes back and the kingdom is consummated and we are in glory worshiping with him, right? It is going to happen. So all that to say, the kingdom is now. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is now. More on that in a moment. Okay. We see consummated language in chapter 11, verse 15. We see inaugurated language in chapter 12, verse 10. I pray that you'll think about that. Already and not yet, language used to convey both of those realities, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, okay? Now that is all tied. It's all tied directly. John, writing in the New Testament, takes his New Testament pen, dips it in the Old Testament inkwell, and dips it in the inkwell of Psalm chapter two. Turn with me to Psalm two. Hang in there with me. Psalm two. This is all directly, directly connected to Psalm two. In fact, that language, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That language of our God and of his Christ only found one other place in the Bible, and it's Psalm 2. There is a direct connection, an intentional connection being made here between Revelation chapter 12, verses you know, 10 through 12, and Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm. It is a messianic psalm about the enthronement of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 uh, verse one, why do the nations rage? Why, do the, why are these people plotting such vain things? The kings of the earth, they set themselves, the rulers of the earth, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There it is. That word there for anointed is a Hebrew word that means Messiah. The Greek translation of that word means Christ, the Lord and his Christ. That's the language that we see in Revelation chapter 12, verse, verse 10 there, verse 14. I'm getting confused with Romans. Against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, verse three, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Well, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He'll hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath. He shall distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet, verse five, or uh, six there, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. And again, uh, Acts interprets this psalm as having been fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he was raised from the dead. Um, As Paul says in Romans chapter one, uh, declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today, I've begotten you. Ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance. That's what has happened now. Uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty, the nations are being given to him as his inheritance. How is that taking place now? Through the preaching of the gospel. God says to the son, God the father says to the son, verse seven or verse eight, ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance. God the father answers that prayer. And now the nations are being given to the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Anyone the Lord calls out from the nations to his own name is coming through the preaching of the gospel and his kingdom is being built. The ends of the earth, given to him in verse eight, for his possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Even now, God is giving him the nations. That's what it means back in Revelation chapter 12. 
and in oh, um, Revelation chapter 12, not Romans chapter 12. Wow, it's really tough preaching both of those books in the same chapter. <laughs> um, in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 12, um, when uh, uh, um, God says that the nations are coming to him, that, uh, that's what it means when God says that the salvation and power and authority of his Christ have come. The salvation and power and authority of his Christ have come. This is the kingdom promised in Daniel 2, that small stone that grows into a great mountain. Um, this is the promised kingdom. The king has been set upon his throne. His reign has begun. The nations have been given to him as his, as his inheritance. He is now building his kingdom, plundering the strong man's house, calling out a people for his name. He is going to do that until the work is complete, right? He's going to do that until uh, the final state of the kingdom is ultimately consummated and his saints, his people are ushered into glory and there is a final judgment upon his enemies, all of which takes place at the end of the age. Now, notice in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 then, notice the terms that are used to describe the nature of that kingdom. Salvation, strength, it's the kingdom of God, and it is the power or the authority. That's what that word means. It means authority. It is the authority of his Christ. That's the kingdom in verse 10. Salvation, strength, it is the kingdom of God, and it's the kingdom of God mediated through the authority or the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first, it's a kingdom that's characterized by salvation. It's a kingdom, it's a kingdom that is characterized by redemption. How is that kingdom being built? It is being built through salvation. Salvation from what? Salvation from sin. Deliverance from the dominion of the evil one. Dominion of the devil the dominion of darkness, a conveyance into the kingdom of the son of his love, the kingdom of the son, his people delivered, right? Therein lies its omnipotent strength, the second descriptor there. It is a kingdom of salvation. It is a kingdom of strength. The devil is powerless. His angels are powerless. They did not prevail. There was no power to prevail. There is nothing, nothing that the strong man can do his activity has been severely bound or restricted or constrained. The kingdom of God mediated through the rule and reign of his priestly king, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ, and all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. That's what the Lord says in Matthew 28. Right? All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, right? And what has that authority been given for? To take out for himself a people. Authority has been given him to execute the decrees that were written front and back on that scroll. If you remember from uh, Revelation chapter four, you see the ancient of days seated upon the throne and in his right hand is a scroll written inside and out front and back. There was a, there was a cry made for someone worthy who could take the scroll from his right hand and open the scroll and carry out the decrees written in that scroll. And no one was found worthy. No one was found worthy. John weeps, weeps. The decrees of God are left unfinished because no one was worthy. And then one steps onto the field of battle, so to speak, right? The only one worthy. One who is called the lion from the tribe of Judah. But when John turns and looks upon him, he stands as, though, as one who has been slain. Right? He is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ 
It is, a, it is a kingdom of salvation. It is a kingdom of strength. And it is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of the power or the authority of his Christ. Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter five takes the scroll from the hand of him who is seated upon the throne and begins to execute the decrees that are determined for the end of this age. And the Lord Jesus Christ begins ruling and reigning. Again, the kingdom is now. He begins to execute the decrees that were written in the scroll. Now, the indication given in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, for the inauguration of this kingdom's existence, the inauguration of this kingdom's reality is the defeat of Satan. Look there with me at verse 10 now. Salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ have come for because the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. There's a shift that takes place. There's a transition that takes place. Uh, and that trans transition is Satan being cast out and Jesus Christ being enthroned. Now we looked at this, we began to look at this in verse nine, where upon the resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Jesus Christ, a great war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought, the dragon and his angels fought, and verse nine, the great dragon was cast out. Described there as the serpent of old, that serpent that deceived even the garden, called the devil, that diabolos, that slanderer, and Satan, the adversary, who, he's described this way, deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So he's described, think with me now, described in verse 10 as the one who accuses the brethren before our God day and night. He's described in verse nine as the one who deceives the whole world. Um, now let's think about that for a moment. Regarding the description of verse nine, he is the deceiver. He deceives those who dwell on the earth. He's been doing it since the beginning. Eve's first remark about the serpent that she encountered in the garden was that he deceived me. He deceived me. He is the deceiver, but not the deceiver of God's elect. Not the deceiver of God's elect. Revelation chapter seven, God's elect have been sealed on their forehead. Revelation chapter three, verse 10, God keeps them through the hour of testing that comes upon the whole world. God preserves them through that hour of testing that comes upon the whole world. In Revelation 11, just flip the page back, Revelation 11, they have been measured. Those who worship in the naos, in the most holy place by virtue of God's spirit, by virtue of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, they're standing before the, the mercy seat. They're standing in the most holy place, worshiping God. Those people are marked off by God and protected. They are preserved from all those gathered in the courts on the outside. So this is the people of God who are not, they're unable to be deceived by this dragon, by the one who deceives the whole world. If you remember the Lord's comments in Matthew chapter 24, that at the time of the end, there will come a period of great tribulation, a period of intense tribulation, a period of intense deception, where with lying signs and wonders, the wicked one, that lawless one that comes, will deceive, if possible, even the elect, if it were possible. 
but it's not possible. Why is it not possible? Because in grace, Matthew 24, God shortens those days to preserve them and God himself preserves them, okay? Not, he deceives the whole world, but not God's elect. His activity is constrained, is bound. However, they're also being preserved in the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12. They go off into the wilderness where they're pursued by the devil, but God has prepared a place for them there where he nourishes them, cares for them, protects them, preserves them, provides for them in the wilderness 1,260 days, the time of this age. But now with, with the ascension and enthronement of Jesus Christ, Satan is cast down, but Satan's activity, Satan's ability, you could say, Satan's authority has been taken away from him. He has been significantly restricted, significantly constrained. He cannot deceive God's people, God's elect. He cannot prevail against the spread of the gospel. He can do nothing against the spread of that kingdom. And the one who has all authority has taken dominion and now rules over this planet, right? Rules over this world. His deceptions, we, we can see this. Obviously, you turn on the news for a moment. You read any article out of the paper. His deceptions are certainly prevalent. Are they not? His deceptive ideologies, his deceptive philosophies spreading like a gangrene uh, around this world, in the known world. But although he prowls and roars and stomps around, he is a defeated foe and his activities are severely restricted. Um, he may um, seek to do harm and can cause chaos and difficulty, but he's defeated. He's done for. He's, he knows, Revelation 12, he knows that he has a very short time. I want to introduce to you, in thinking about this, I want to introduce to you now a concept that we're going to consider in more detail later. Uh, but let me submit it to you now for your meditation in the weeks and months ahead before we get to Revelation 20. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He is the one, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, that deceives the whole world. But, but, Matthew chapter 12. And we've looked at some of these texts before. They bear repeating. And again, repetition just helps us to lock these things down. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. The Lord Jesus Christ is walking the earth. He stepped onto the field of battle and he um, is, he's binding the strong man. <laughs> and he's plundering his house, taking a people for himself out of the world. So one was brought to him, verse 22, who was demon-possessed. Here it is, a moment of conflict between the Lord Jesus Christ and some demon on this earth. This man was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And the Lord Jesus Christ healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. That demonstrates the Lord's power and authority over demons on this earth. The real king has shown up. Now, right? The real power is now present. Verse 23, and all the multitude, multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Absolutely. Verse 24, now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. He's not casting out demons except by Satan. Jesus, that's, 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 oh, that's blasphemy, isn't it? 
Uh, that is in keeping with the unpardonable sin. Talk about that another time. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided itself divided against itself will not stand. In other words, this is not a representative or representation of a divided kingdom of Satan where Satan is ruling and Satan is being cast out. No, 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 no. This is a replacement, right? This is a, a Satan is being evicted. He's being evicted, <laughs> his kingdom defeated and a new kingdom, the everlasting kingdom being established. Verse 26, the Lord explains, if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? It certainly won't. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? What is the Lord Jesus Christ? What is he asserting by making that statement? Jesus Christ is casting out demons and he's casting out demons by the power of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? What has Jesus Christ done? Jesus Christ has bound the strong man. How could he be casting out Satan, right? How could he be casting out Satan? How could he be plundering his goods, calling out a people for his name, unless he has bound the devil? The Lord Jesus Christ has bound him. And then, having bound the strong man, verse 29, he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. That took place during the Lord's reign. We see a parallel account in Luke chapter 10. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Hang in there with me. Getting closer here. Luke chapter 10. Notice, these are the conditions that now exist, even now, while he reigns from heaven. The strong man has been bound. He is plundering the house. His bride uh, for him is plundering the strong man's house and the kingdom is being built. Luke chapter 10, in verse, in verse 17. Same context, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, after witnessing, you know, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, the demons subject to the apostles, to the disciples, is an indication of Satan being cast down. Do you see? Satan losing his authority, as it were. Jesus Christ having bound the strong man. Behold, he says to them, I give you the authority because Jesus Christ has it now, right? Jesus Christ has all authority. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions over demons, over all the power of the enemy, over satanic forces, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. You cannot be eternally lost. They may kill your body, but what is that to us? Brothers and sisters, what is that to us? They may kill our body. What is that to us? We have inherited the kingdom. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice that you have power, that the demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Amen. Amen. He assures them of their victory. Satan cannot stop them. He is bound, so to speak. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. 
How are we to understand this binding of Satan? I think this explains it uh, really clearly for us. Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Does that language sound familiar to you? Where have you heard that language before? <laughs> Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Is that a coinkydink? A coincidence? That <laughs> the same? Oh, he used the same language in Revelation 12. No, it's not a coincidence. That connection is absolutely intentional. What is John saying? What's being communicated through the use of this vision, this symbol? This is that. This is connected to that, right? He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. When did that bound, binding take place? It took place in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ during the Lord's earthly ministry, in his victory at the cross, in his victory at the resurrection, in his victory at his ascension, in his victory at his enthronement, and in the victory of the war that took place in heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, when Satan was cast out, right? The, 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 the strong man was bound and bound for a thousand years. Now, again, we'll talk about this more when we get to this text. These are symbolic. These are symbolic. They're visions, pictures, depicting spiritual realities. So this thousand years, thousand is a symbolic number. Number meaning a long time, but a number meaning entirely complete, entirely perfect. Done, a sufficient, a complete amount of time. We'll talk about that more then. And this angel cast Satan into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. He's not going to deceive those whom God is calling out for himself. He's not going to deceive God's elect. They most certainly will come at God's call. Do you see? After these things, he must be released for a little while. Verse seven. When the thousand years have expired... Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, reference to Ezekiel, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and, be and the beloved city. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. Hell is not annihilation. Hell is forever and ever. So Satan then is released for a short time. Satan is bound while his house is being plundered. The witness of the saints cannot be stopped. The elect of God cannot be ultimately deceived. The spread of the kingdom cannot, cannot be stopped. It will most certainly encompass the earth and last into eternity. Then... At the end, the very end, there is this release for a period of time. Now turn back with me to Revelation chapter 11. And notice, there'll be more of an explanation of this when we get to Revelation 20. But there will come a time, Revelation chapter 11, at the end of the age when the church finishes her testimony. Right? In verse 7, when they finish, when these two witnesses, right, when they finish their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Where's that beast coming from? Out of the bottomless pit. When? 
at the very end of the age before the return of Jesus Christ, right? I, I think these two things correspond. This release of Satan out of the bottomless pit for a short period of time at the very end of the age, Revelation 11, is equivalent to the release of Satan who's been bound for that thousand years in Revelation chapter 20. Um, and there will come a point at the end where there is a, a, a time, another very intense period of great persecution, great demonic activity, we don't have time to go there. Paul explains in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that there will come a time of great delusion that uh, the lawless one will do lying signs and wonders to deceive the whole world. God will send upon them a great delusion. They're going to be, these demons are going to be doing signs and wonders to deceive if possible, even the elect. But it's not possible because God shortens those days. In Revelation chapter 11, those days shortened are now described as three and a half days. Right where their bodies, the bodies of the witnesses are lying in the streets while the people of this world make merry, exulting over their deaths. And there's this intense period of demonic activity, of evil, this intense period of wickedness at the very end of the age before Jesus Christ comes in flaming fire with his angels to exact justice. All that takes place at the end of the age. I commend those texts to you. Um, I would hope that you would look at those and read those and, and put those things together. We'll talk about it more when we get to those texts in Revelation 20. Let me conclude with this thought for you. In all of that, in all of that, the bride, the bride of Christ during this age walks in the pattern that has been established by her bridegroom. In the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ steps onto the field of battle, he's taken away uh, in the spirit to the wilderness to be tested there by the devil. He battles the devil with the word of God. We're gonna see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, that describes how we overcome by the word of our testimony. He battles Satan, overcomes, overcomes Satan by the word of God. Um, and then wages war, as it were, against demonic forces, plundering the strong man's house, calling out a people for his name, until he suffers death at the cross and is raised from the dead to glory. That's the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He ascends to his throne. I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that we are following the very same pattern and that, frankly, is what is going to take place in this age to the bride of Christ, just as it took place to the bridegroom. And in that, we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering. We fill up in our flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ in the sense that we follow the very same pattern. The bride of Christ is now in the wilderness during her time of testing. We are battling. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? We fight it. We're fighting this spiritual warfare. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony, just as the Lord Jesus Christ overcome, overcomes, we battle during this age, this spiritual warfare that takes place. And there will come a point where in Revelation 11, the witness, the Lord's witnesses are left dead in the street, as it were, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age to usher us into glory. Right? We're following in the same pattern that was established by our Lord. And in that, when we persevere, when we overcome, we glorify and we magnify him who bought us, him who has redeemed us, the one who is our bridegroom, the one who we're in union with. We glorify and magnify him. It is an awesome picture. 
Let me conclude with this. I have to skip some things and we'll come back to this another time. The death, resurrection, and enthronement of Jesus Christ indicates a victory in the war. In point one, we saw the victory of our Lord in verse 10. In point two, we're going to consider the vic- his victory is our victory in verse 11. And they, over verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even to the death. Revelation chapter tw- three, verse 12, the Lord promises to him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. To those who are in union with Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ himself promises them that if they overcome, they'll sit with him on his throne as he overcame. That's part of following in that pattern. We overcome as it were in him as he overcame for us. So then, verse 10, salvation, strength, the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. The kingdom is now. Brothers and sisters, that's why I would hold to what is called amillennialism, is that uh, amillennialism teaches that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is right now. It is right now. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning from his throne right now. The kingdom has been inaugurated. We are awaiting its final consummation. And verse 11, while we wait, we are to preserve his worship and we are to preserve his witness until he comes again. And we are to overcome. Verse 11, overcome by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony, not loving our lives even to the death. We are then to be the martyroi, the martyrs, the witnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to love him more than our own lives. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we do. We acknowledge, we confess, Lord, we love you more than our own lives, uh, even to the death. Uh, and Lord, help us. We know that we're weak. We're prone to wander. Our love is prone to wax and wane. Uh, we're often fleshly to our own shame. And we pray, Lord, we, we're, we're grateful to you that we're not preserving ourselves, that you are preserving us. We're not doing this in our own strength. You are the one who strengthens us. And we know, Lord, that in you, we are invincible against the forces that are arrayed against us. We exult in you for that. We glorify your name. We magnify the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice that we are the bride who participates in that work, following the pattern that has been established by our Lord, knowing all you decree will come to pass for Jesus coming. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.